Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello and welcome to the Prospect Interview. The podcast where we meet some of the brightest minds of today and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. My name is Samir Rahim and this week I'm delighted to be talking to the writer Robert McFarlane about his book Underland, A Deep Time Journey. Robert takes us on a journey through the deeper recesses of our planet, going caving in England, walking through the underground catacombs in Paris and watching the ice melt in Greenland. We chat about what writers can do to save the planet, what it really means to be living in the age of the Anthropocene, and why he doesn't like the term nature writer. Rob McFarland, thank you for joining us on the Prospect interview. Pleasure. Your first book, Mountains of the Mind, started, uh, topographically speaking, at a high point, and then through your later uh, nature writing, you, you came back down to earth, as it were, in works like the wild places and, and the old ways. Um, Underland is a subterranean exploration which moves from the caves of Norway to the catacombs of Paris. Has it been a sort of a conscious descent, as it were, or has it, has it just been how uh, your material has taken you? Yeah, I think the latter probably. I mean, gra- gravity seems to have exerted its pull. I think we can we can say that looking back. It's taken me nearly 2,000 pages and nearly 20 years to, to, to get as far down as I've got. Uh, and I'm not sure what's left, really, uh, because I think the, the deepest this book gets is, uh, I think, a, a vertical mile below ground, and there's not much left after that. But, yeah, it's the, it, lives in, it lives in inverse relationship with the, with the very first book I wrote, Mount of the Mind, which was basically, what, why go high, why get high? And this one is, is why go low? Um, the answer turned out to be a much older and more mysterious one. It's a highly suggestive metaphor, isn't it, that writers have taken on for thousands of years from Yorfi's story, Virgil, Jules Verne, the idea that we're digging down into something. Um, it, it, it exerts a powerful pull, doesn't it? It really does. And, and I was very conscious writing this book, which is made of many stories anyway, but that it was just another, another layer, another iteration of, of what is arguably the oldest story in, in the world. In fact, it's there in the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is the first written work of literature that we that we have uh, that, that's a work obsessed with the underworld um, it, its subtitle is effectively he who stared into the abyss and there is a there's a variant tablet which has Enkidu um, Gilgamesh's friend uh, descending into the underworld to to retrieve 
lost precious object and what he finds there is not only the objects but also of course the dead among them children and what he comes eventually back up to the surface with is a new vision of the upper world and that I met time and again in in life and in 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 culture as it were and I finished writing the book in the month that the the Thai football team was was peering into the mountain and following its uh, curiosity and wonder-seeking instincts into the heart of that mountain only to be trapped there and for the world to to watch as its fate unfolded. Yeah, I suppose that story, a bit like the Chilean miners being stuck stuck uh, for so many days, did grab the world's attention. And there is that sense that um, uh, if going deep down is is the exciting thing. In some ways, <laughs> in, in this book, that like the reemergence when you come blinking out into the light, that's in a way also a profound moment, isn't it? It, it is. Yeah, I'm surfacing, as I as I call it in the book. Um, it as an individual is, is, a, is a rebirth really. You, you, you see colour again, green is green like you've never known it before and blue um, blows your mind. It's, it's trippy, it's trippy when you come back up to the surface and it's no surprise that that return should figure as rebirth in, in, in so many, um, in so many myth, myth kitties as it were. I, I, I became fascinated by the, by the fascination with those underworld as it were, real-world events, the Chilean miners you mentioned and the Thai football team, I can, I can actually think of no two real-world events in the past 10 years, uh, 2010 and 2018 respectively, which have, have gripped the world's imagination. So, I mean, billions of people watched those two stories unfold and that, that there's something about the way the Underland speaks to the what Heaney called the backwards and abysm of the mind. It really draws us in as a kind of plot. And I remember being asked again and again by, uh, by press to comment on the Thai story, um, but I wasn't willing to do so until, until it was over, really, because it, it could only be treated, it seemed to me, as story once, once the children were safe. And then I felt I could approach it as a, a, as a narrative rather than a, a tragedy waiting to happen. And there was those very moving pictures of uh, the rescuer who who died uh, trying to rescue them and, and, and their um their tributes to him uh, afterwards. That will always stay with me. The court holding his picture and doing yeah. prayers for him. That was amazing, wasn't it? Yeah, I'm getting shivers down my spine just just remembering it through through your words and, and, and that extraordinary moment as well. We've got some grainy footage of it where the, the first diver breaks the surface of the water in the flooded chamber where the the kids and their coach were, were trapped and they, they, they've been there in the darkness for days and then suddenly there's light in the water and it, it comes up and, and it speaks, it's human, it says, how many, how many are you? 13, help is coming. Uh, I mean, what, what a mythic moment. I mean, in the Underland, you're always trembling on this brink between myth, metaphor and a brutal materiality that, that traps, confines, incarcerates and punishes human bodies, labouring and um, recreational. It's not only spatial, of course, because the, the subtitle of the book is A Deep Time Journey. There's that sense that you're, you're stepping into the past as you're stepping down as well. Yeah, it's a book fascinated by time, as all books are really, but deep, deep time is John McPhee's phrase for, for the geological time frame, the geological ages of the earth, the, the, the time that's measured in eons and, and epochs uh, rather than minutes and hours. Uh, and it's part of a, the book's bigger argument about 
an ethical relationship to deep time life on this planet. We, we, we exist, it's, and it's a miracle that we exist in, in the deep time context. We are the beneficiaries of inherited gifts and legacies left by predecessors, human and uh, non-human. And we in turn are a legacy leaving species. This is the proposition at the basis of the idea of the Anthropocene, the, the idea that we are we have created a new earth epoch where our titanic consequences for the um, formation and future of the planet are so profound that they will be legible in the strata for millions of years to come. To some people that, that crushes ethics. It says, well, what does it matter in a deep time context, what we do now? But to me, as I argue in the book, it, it should sharpen our ethical, indeed our political sense of ourselves as a legacy leaving species. Can we be good ancestors? To borrow Jonas Salk's question. Yeah, the Anthropocene was something I wanted to talk to you about. And it, it's, a, it's, it's one of those labels that seems to have percolated into the consciousness in the last sort of, you know, five or 10 years or so. Mm -hmm. And you, you describe it, you know, as an epoch of loss. What, exa what exactly is it? And um, is it something, how can we describe it? Well, in its uh, sort of stratigraphic definition, as it were, we are technically still um, inhabitants of the, uh, the Holocene, the, 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 the New Age, as it were. Uh, and that followed the Pleistocene, which was the, the epoch of, of ice predominantly. And we, the Holocene has been the period epoch of Earth history, which has seen the flourishing of, of the human species. Climatic conditions have been favourable. To that and we have spread um, in, the, in the ways that we have in terms of number and te technology. Uh, but the Anthropocene remains as yet a proposed rather than a formally accepted new earth epoch but it, it attributes as I've said the, the, the power of a um, legacy leaving strata shaping influence to humans. So we, what examples of that might there be? Radionuclides are incredibly durable in the rock record. We, as soon as we learned how to um, test nuclear weapons and harness nuclear power. We were laying down strata markers, which, which will last for millions of years. We also leave our record in terms of absences. So the great extinction that's underway at the moment um, will, will report itself in the strata as an absence, a diminishing of diversity in the fossil record. What will be there are billions and billions of chicken bones, swine bones and cattle bones. Chicken are prob probably the most successful vertebrate species ever to have existed on Earth. Now, we might think that we farm them, but in a way we have, they farm us, that we, we have ensured, if not their long-term survival as individuals, their fabulous success as a species. So when we look back in the rock record, the, the, the Anthropocene imagines a future sort of paleogeologist reading our runes, reading our strata. What will it see that we were a war waging, um, soil uh, destroying, uh, extinction bent uh, super species, which brought about its own destruction. Is that the legacy we wish to leave? And speaking about sort of legacies and leaving uh, messages and sort of the rock strata, one of the most astonishing bits in the book is when you go to uh, Norway and you make your way to these amazing cave uh, paintings, the, the red dancers, yeah. and you're seeing these people um, painted on the, uh, on the walls of the cave from, from thousands of years ago. Um, what was that experience like? 
that well i'm glad you like that chapter it's i don't think i'll ever live or or write anything quite like it again i mean i, I made this journey alone in winter uh, it was it was in a way ill-planned or rather overtaken by, by by weather circumstance so i crossed what's called the wall of the foot and wall the granite um, mountain range that separates the, uh, the, the the seaward side from the landward side of that arctic chain of islands and i was there to to see this huge sea cave um, which sits hard by the Milestrom, the original whirlpool at the end of the main chain of Lofoten Islands. And it, the crossing of the wall in winter absolutely um, exhausted me and, and brought me to a state of uh, something like delirium. And then I made my way into this cave where probably around 2000 years earlier, itinerant um, fisher, hunter, people, periarctic, Mesolithic, late Mesolithic, effectively, though we would now call them Bronze Age, but they were probably peripatetic, went in and, and, and made art. They made art of these leaping figures of, of red dancers, um, iron oxide, painted with a fingertip, three or four uh, easy strokes to create a, a dancing figure with arms and legs. And those flickered eventually into my sight. They're very faint now. Uh, and and I, I, I wept and time collapsed around me at that moment and I realized that that the, the rock itself was the co-artist of of that of that making as was the landscape that rippled outwards from that that great dark sea cave. And are, are the paintings as it were protected by how difficult they are to to get to because I know some of the cave paintings like Lascaux for example in the Dordogne that you, you can't actually go in there anymore yeah. because you'll, you, you'll destroy them if you with your breath as it were. Yes, yes. I mean, there's very, so there's very little painted periarctic cave art or rock art um, because for obvious reasons, there were, well, there were fewer people up there um, uh, and uh, the ice retreated late up there. So the caves only became available for art making, as it were, much later, but also because the, con the climatic conditions are so fierce that they've destroyed a lot of, a lot of cave art, if, if, if there was any. There's a lot of uh, engraved rock art um, but but very little painted cave art. So it's very rudimentary compared to those astonishing scenes that we all know in our mind's eye from Lascaux and Chauvet, where, as Werner Herzog argues, um, cinema was invented in a way, the, the, the moving multiple images of the beasts of, of Chauvet and Lascaux. But these, um, the, these figures, we, I mean, what fascinates me about them, what fascinates anyone about, I guess, um, prehistoric cave art is, is, is why. Um, why, 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 why make art at a time when just being alive is a, an hourly challenge? Um, that said, being alive is an hourly challenge now, and we, uh, we remain a profoundly creative species. Um, we're, we're heavily confined at present. Um, claustrophobia, which I write a great deal about in the book, which I finished before COVID, uh, has become a daily experience for many people confined and and, and trapped, but still we we create. So I, we've never been modern, as uh, Bruno Latour puts it, and I, I found that very often when I was traveling underground. There's always a tension, I think, in your work, which I wanted to ask you about. You, you, you explore less visited places. You, you you go to you bring us the, the you know the reader these amazing reports from um, these uh, wonderful places. I mean, of course, if we all went there, then there'd be they'd be ruined, wouldn't they? Um, and um, 
uh, and particularly in the sort of COVID area where, where, where we, are, we are locked down, there is much less air travel, um, this is better for the environment, but does that, that, does that necessarily mean a narrowing in our, our vision of what we can explore and that human urge to sort of go out there and see things? Uh, well, as somebody said I should get a business card which had written on it, I, I do these things so you don't have to, um, and certainly with Underland, I mean there are plenty of the places I got to were unappealing as it were sort of according to conventional standards of of travel aesthetics I think it's fair to say um so so Underland I think probably has the least likely legacy in terms of drawing people to to certain places although I've already heard from a from a few who will will follow some of the sites when they when they can um you know we traveled we traveled too much as uh, we, we, we know that there was you know, vastly promiscuous traveling occurring um, uh, where it really wasn't necessary both professionally and, and recreationally. And I, um, I, I, I'm very skeptical of, of what I've called pandemic utopianism in terms of its COVID outcome for a better ecological future. Uh, but I think that it, it, it just has necessarily straightened in the sense of, of um, restricted and reduced uh, some of that prolific traveling that was happening beforehand. I'm sure it will build back up again, but there is still this sense of a moment where a remaking and a rethinking can happen. And will that allow us to focus a little bit more on, on the local, you know, even if it is just, you know, even your garden or a wood or just something down the road that... Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's a really, uh, I, I too have been thinking that and I, if I had to make a prediction for uh, quote unquote nature or travel writing um, for the next five, five to seven years or so, it would probably see a, a return to an intense scrutiny of, of the local, the parochial in the, in the powerful and positive sense of that word. Uh, Patrick Kavanagh, the Irish poet, I quote somewhere in an early book, he has a lovely passage where he talks about to know fully a corner of four fields or even a whole hedge is a lifetime's experience. Um, and I think this cinching down of the curtilage of, of being, as it were, is, is retuning forms of, of attention uh, and, 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 and love and care. So it will be fascinating to see how that feeds through uh, culturally in, in the next five years or so. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. 
Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. I mean, you'll know better than me, but I don't know many people, I don't know much writing, poetic writing about viruses. <laughs> um, I, I could be wrong, but has the virus, in all its horribleness and it, it, relentlessness, has it offered us a level of, you know, asked us to be a bit more, um, a bit more humility in the face of nature and the, the lack of control we have over things? We could not have predicted, most of us living our ordinary lives, that nature could come back and yeah. still be this powerful force. But, but here we are. Well, I, I mean. Underland, the beginning of Underland is I, I, I raise this idea of what I call un, unburials, Anthropocene unburials, so forces that we thought consigned safely to storage uh, or the past that, that rise back up much as trauma does in Freud's model of the, of the, of the unconscious mind, it resurfaces. Uh, and I give the example of melting permafrost in uh, releasing dormant and theoretically imprisoned anthrax spores for example which was happening in Siberia long before Covid struck. Uh, I give other examples of, of long drought stones in, in, in the river Elba which were, which were marked and sunk below the waterline saying things like if you if you if you read this then weep. Uh, these were sunk in the in the medieval period as as warnings of that would surface at times of uh, scarcity so we, we seem to be surrounded by these, these unburials, these surfacings, and of course the most powerful of those that we've, we've seen is, is COVID, which, we, which was effectively re released by deforestation. And, uh, uh, and here we come back to, to the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is the first great story and is a story of violent deforestation. Uh, Gilgamesh and Enkidu take their axes to the sacred cedarwood, they slay the guardian spirit Humbaba, and then they fell the trees uh, prolifically and unnecessarily and cut up one of them to make the door of a palace. I mean, this is a warning <laughs> from 4,000 years ago that it's a very bad idea. Enkidu dies uh, and Gilgamesh is only convinced he's dead when a maggot crawls from his nose. I was just reading on the BBC website this morning that a big chunk of ice is broken away from uh, northeast Greenland, 110 square kilometres. And you go to Greenland, don't you? And, you, and you, you think about what it might mean for an environment to be changing um, so rapidly. Yes, ice. I mean, I've written about ice all my life. I'm a yeah, fully paid up cryophile, but we are, we are starting to see the beginning of the end of ice. And that is a terror. That is a terrifying prospect. Um, in Greenland, I, I've, I've never been in a, a landscape where ice is more powerful. 
where the idea of any force more powerful than ice is is hard harder to sustain ice seems everything it's sculpted that world it's so heavy in the center of greenland that if you removed the ice cap you'd find that the land had been pushed down into the crust by up to a mile um it's uh, it's everything and yet i was there in what was then the summit of greatest melt 2016 and i was also conscious that we enfolded ice it was vulnerable to us despite its awesomeness it was melting the glaciers were carving they were flowing faster the the sea levels were rising concomitantly it was hitting 24 degrees in nuke the capital of greenland on the west coast so uh, the 110k that is or square miles that's split off is yeah is is a follow through of that and down in antarctica we have thwaites glacier bigger in area than than britain which has a void or voids forming beneath it uh, these are another form of unburial they're, they're rising up they are allowing uh, the increased melt rates to occur to the glacier and that in turn is it, it, it holds about four percent of uh, uh, of the fresh water locked up in ice wait so you can imagine the consequences for sea level rise you've got a very striking metaphor um, when you talk about um, as a human mind might late in life struggle to remember its earliest moments so the oldest memory of ice is harder to retrieve and more vulnerable to loss hmm. you're trying to sort of get us to really think in terms of human terms so we can actually you know, try and understand that this is an incredibly uh, serious um, uh, life affecting um, world affecting uh, disaster uh, that's, that's uh, interesting I hadn't, I hadn't consciously sort of Human, humanized it like that but 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 yes i guess that 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 is what i was trying to do i mean i became compelled by this idea that that ice is a storage medium that it it's it stores in data um as efficiently and and com compar comparably with um a, a computer's hard drive it's just that we've only re relatively recently learned how to how to read it um we we've we've we've, we've develop the technology that allows us to core down into ice retrieve the core and then uh, and and then read these these tiny little bursts of data that exist in the trapped bubbles of of atmosphere as it were within the ice um, we also use that delving down as a form of futurology that that struck me very powerfully as well by which i mean that climatologists use ice core records to to look back for example at the emian uh, when a, a period of, of rapid temperature rise occurred and then foretell that as it were the climate futures of the anthropocene and this is very very like uh what the sibyl of cumai does uh in in classical um uh storytelling what what the, the oracle at delphi does they they draw up prophecy from below and then they 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 they, they tell that that prophecy and it becomes a force of utterance in the the upper world as it were and as the ice disappears man-made uh, products are sort of filling up the the ground there's a you know nuclear waste is one of the most striking ones you you, you write about and um i think it's a place in finland that you visit which is designing places to to hold this nuclear substance that's going to be around for thousands and thousands of years and you, you, you do wonder whether um, you know, we haven't asked our children or grandchildren or great-great-grandchildren 
uh, whether they would uh, like to have to deal with this stuff, have we? No, we, we, we certainly haven't. And that's, that's the good ancestry that we touched on earlier, uh, or the bad ancestry rather. But actually, I, I went to this high-level high nuclear waste, a deep repository, 400 meters down, drilled into the gneiss and the granite on the, on the Gulf of Bothnia, the Finnish coast of the Gulf of Bothnia, hard by uh, two, soon to be three nuclear power stations. And I went expecting to find myself at the end of the world. But in fact, I've, I found it a very, a very hopeful place. This was the one example in, on the planet where we have successfully created, as it were, an eternity tomb for the worst, most toxic, most persistently toxic matter that we have generated as a, as a byproduct of our being as a species, high-level nuclear waste. And it's, um, yeah, they, they've constructed it with a view to it, it lasting tens of thousands of years without releasing its, its harm into the upper world. And this is good ancestry. This is being responsible to not just um, generations that you will never meet, but even species that you will never meet. And I found that in the end profoundly moving and a really good example of the kind of good ancestry that we should be practicing. So in recent years, we've seen Extinction Rebellion and other groups like Writers Rebel um, demonstrate um, close by the offices and uh, prospect offices here in uh, Westminster. Um, I'm wondering what you thought the writer's role uh, could be. Is it to, to, to preach, to uh, describe, or um, generally the role of uh, literature? It's a really good question. It's when I ask myself, uh, well, most days, really. I was, I was part of Writers' Rebel, the, the, the re, sort of marathon reading hosted by Simon McBurney in Trafalgar Square last, last autumn. And it was one of the most exhilarating sort of literary events I've ever been at, the sense of releasing language and literature into the, the crackling air filled with, um, with, with sirens, with songs of protest from different parts of the square people standing up to to go off to be peacefully arrested in the middle of the reading. I read work by, um, by, by other poets from other parts of the world. I also read a, a protest poem called Heartwood that I wrote that became very involved in the Sheffield tree protest against the unnecessary felling there. So in a, in a way, I think the, the, these protests and, and others like them have really set, set literature buzzing again. Uh, and the other thing I'd say is that writers don't just write, they also teach, they also volunteer in places, they also go on marches, um, they also write letters, they take indirect and direct action. Um, Nick Hayes' brilliant recent book, The Book of Trespass, a really good example of a, of a book of quote-unquote nature writing that's in fact extremely focusedly political in the claims it's making and the wishes it has for um, changes to access laws and right to roam in, in England. So. Um, I, I feel excited by what's happening, and I don't think that, that literature um, or nature writing, if we want to call it that, which I, I don't really uh, any longer, um, it, it has this sort of automatically supine posture to the political world. Rob McFarlane, thank you very much. Thanks, Samir. That's all from us on the Prospect interview. Thank you for joining us this week. If you enjoyed our podcast, please do leave us a rating and a review. It really does help. Goodbye, stay safe and see you next week.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.